Turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. Um, we are in the second week. Hopefully you've got a program on your way in. We are in the second week of our sermon series called The Other Side of But. And but is one of those statements, right? It's one of those statements that when you hear it, you kind of prepare yourself. You kind of grip for what is to come. When someone makes a statement and then ends it with those three letters, but... You're kind of ready for the other shoe to drop, aren't you? Think about it. You've heard these phrases. You've said these statements before. Honey, I love the new recipe, but (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Tom, you're a great asset to the team, but... And the good news is we didn't find any abnormalities in your scans, but... The Browns, the Cleveland Browns won two games, but... We all know that joke, right? Like, we've all heard that before. This is one that I'm not looking forward to. Dad, you will always be the first man to love me, but that is a big but that I refuse to accept. My oldest daughter, Sydney, she's the one that made me a dad. Uh, She turned 20 years old today, and the reality of, you know, she's not in a dating relationship right now, but the reality that someday soon she could be, and she could be, you know, wanting to give her heart to another man is just not, it's not that, that, you know, that thing that I'm necessarily looking forward to. And so one of these days she's going to come to me and say, dad, I know you've always loved me first, but there's another, there's another man now. And I'm not looking forward to that, but you know, the beauty of the word, but is that on the other side of it, on the other side, you put God in front of, let me say this, you put God in front of the word but, and it changes the expectation. It changes the consequences. It changes the entire outcome. When we say but God, man, it turns hopeless situations into hope-filled situations. But God brings peace to the storm. But God makes the impossible possible. But God flips all these negatives into positives, and rarely is it the other way around. Certainly in Scripture, as you look throughout the entire Bible, there are a few times where but God means punishment is coming, like hardship is coming. And usually it was because someone had rebelled against God's word or his ways. But usually in Scripture, but God flips all negatives into positives. And my question for you this morning as we get into our topic today is, have you ever had a but God moment? One of those moments that didn't seem to be hope-filled, you didn't maybe see the light at the end of the tunnel, you didn't see the way through or the way out, you couldn't find the victory in this moment, and then God shows up, but God And he flips your entire script. He flips the entire story for his glory and for your good. You ever had one of those moments? My guess is is that as I I kind of mentioned that, it brings back recollections for you in your memory of those times where God has maybe even miraculously showed up and done a work in your life. You know, I think a lot of us, unfortunately, we live too much on this side of but and not the other. And I think the reason that we do that is because far too many of us, we leave God out of the equations of our situations. You know, we don't consider God's part in our circumstances and in our pain and in our anxieties and in our, um, man, just outcomes. 
And I've counseled with so many people over the years that don't look for what God is doing in their situation. And do you know the issue that brings up some of the biggest buts in every counseling situation I've been in? It's temptation. Temptation brings along with it one of the biggest buts that there is. And you've maybe heard these statements before. Unfortunately for some of you, maybe you've said some of these statements before. I don't want to take another drink, but... Man, I want to control my diet and my weight, but I don't want to say those words. I don't want to respond in anger, but I don't want to worry about that thing that I can't control, but I don't want to go further into debt, but man, we make excuses for all these things. And the reality is, folks, this morning is that temptation creeps at each and every one of our doorsteps. I heard a quote this week. I just thought it was so good. Someone once said this. Opportunity may only knock once, but temptation leans on the doorbell. Think about that. It just keeps coming and coming and coming, and it wants to wear us down. It does not matter this morning what your social class is. It does not matter your skin color. It does not matter your age. It does not matter your gender. Temptation is at the doorstep of each and every one of us, and we all face it. And we all need to experience but God in our temptations and our struggles, which leads us to James chapter 1 this morning. I want to read verses 12 through 15. We're going to jump around a little bit, but this will kind of be our home text today. James is saying this to the believers that are scattered all over the known world at that time. He said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death." Now, we read these verses, and what we need to understand about our temptation is, number one, first of all, this is, this is not in your notes. We're not quite there yet. But the first thing you need to understand is that God is not tempted by anyone or anything, and he does not tempt us. So we need to understand where our temptation comes from. And in order for us to understand what we're lured into, we need to talk about three terms that we just read in this passage of scripture. Now, this is where your notes are going to come in handy. We have a lot of blanks this morning. So if you want to follow along, grab a pen and fill in some of these blanks. I hope that God will use this message to encourage you and edify you and maybe even challenge you in some very specific ways. But in order for us to understand the bait that is used to lure us, we need to talk about three things. Number one, trials to weaken us. Trials to weaken us. If we look back at verse 12, it says this, Blessed is the man who is steadfast under trial. Now we know that a trial is a difficulty that we have as a result of living in a fallen world. Our lives are full of trials. Our lives are full of difficulties. And and even though this world is as amazing as it is, there's a lot of good things that we get to experience on this side of heaven, isn't there? Like it's not all bad. Like When God created creation originally, it was said to be good. And so there are good aspects of it. But the fact of the matter is is that even those things that were good at the very beginning, everything has been tainted 
by sin. It has been stained by sin. It has been infected by sin. And because of that, it brings hardships into our lives. There's no escaping it. Over the course of a lifetime, if a person doesn't have the strength of Christ, if it doesn't have the comfort of the Holy Spirit in their lives, trials, little by little, one by one, can wear a person down, exhausting them in their faith. And I can tell you that I've been through this. I've experienced this, and so have many of you. You've been through those difficult seasons where you just don't know if you can survive this trial. You know, my my wife's father passed away about 13 years ago, maybe 14 years ago. And uh, so my father-in-law was a, was a great man of God, and he, uh, he lost his battle to cancer. And that was the first person in either of our lives that was extremely close to us that we had ever lost. And that was a difficult season. And my wife went into a kind of a deep depression for about 12 months. She didn't know how to handle it. And what I would tell you is, is that because of that loss, the enemy crept in. It depressed her and it divided us. It was one of the hardest seasons of our marriage because this trial was used to lull us away from Christ and to lull us and, and, and to weaken us in our spirituality and in our relationship with Jesus. So that's the first thing that we need to understand the first term. The second one are tests, tests to strengthen us. Now, tests are sent to us by God to develop our faith and to build us up. God wants us to develop a spiritual grit. He wants us to have a grittiness about us that will allow us to endure, that will allow us to persevere to the end through all of life's trials, through all of life's tests. He wants to use these tests in order to build up our faith. But sadly, the modern church is lacking in grittiness today, isn't it? I mean, we do not know what it means to suffer. We hear so much about today and these days, we hear so much about Christians who are deconstructing their faith as opposed to constructing their faith, as opposed to building it up, they're trying to tear it down and maybe even rebuild it. But often, oftentimes what happens is in the process of deconstructing, they lose it altogether. And that's kind of where we're at. That is, that is one of those things that many Christians are doing that's become very popular in these days, for many people, they have, uh, for a season, for a time, they have traveled the path of discipleship and they found it to be too difficult. They found it to be um, too narrow. I think about what Charles Spurgeon once said in a sermon to his church. He said, easy roads made sleepy travelers. And I think that we have had the easy path for far too long as Christians in our church, in the modern church today, and we have grown accustomed to the good life, the easy life, and we've fallen asleep at the wheel. We don't have a theology for suffering. We don't have a theology for difficulty. We don't have a theology for struggle and for testing and for trials. And so the church is bought into this lifestyle that is completely opposite of what Jesus told his followers to expect when they signed up to follow him. He said this, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. He said, this is what you can expect And so when testing comes our way, for many of us, we're not ready for it. And it lulls us away from Christ. It lures us away from Christ. And the reality is, is that many people in the church today, they want a prosperity gospel more than they want a pure gospel. They want something that makes them feel good. They want something that that leads to an easy life. They want something that's going to make them happy more than it is going to make them holy. And I want you to understand that great hearts are produced by great testing. 
And that's what God is trying to do. He's trying to develop grit and he's trying to develop a great heart in you through the tests that he brings your way. But when you don't have a proper perspective on the testing, what we find is that the enemy loves to creep in. He loves to creep in and he loves to uh, basically uh, take over those tests and use them and manipulate them for his purposes. So we need to understand that there are trials, there are tests, but there are also temptations that we see in verses 12 through 15. There are temptations to lure us when the trials get the best of us. When testing pushes us to our limits, the enemy loves to present us with opportunities. And oftentimes those opportunities are really just opportunities to compromise. And every time that opportunity is a mask for temptation, it's an easy way out that leads to destruction. These are all the baits of the enemy. These are the ways that the enemy loves to lure us in and attack us. And once we understand those baits, right? Like we read all of those in verses 12 through 15. We saw tests, we saw trials, we saw temptations. We need to understand who and what it is that's baiting us into this temptation because it's more than just one person or more than just one thing. But the first thing is in the next section of your notes, the baiter is the devil. Number one, the devil. If we're going to understand what the bait is, we need to understand who is baiting us. And first of all, it's the devil. I think, I think we can all agree that there is a force of evil in our world, in the spirit realm, that wants to wreak havoc on creation. We can look around the world. It doesn't take us very far to see that Satan has tremendous influence in our world. He is turning truth upside down. He is confusing. He is perverting truth. Satan is not a cartoon caricature that he is often portrayed as. He is no respecter of persons. He is not your friend. And he is certainly not someone to be trifled with. Satan is our primary enemy who is set on destruction. In fact, when Jesus said, I have come that I might give you life and give it more abundantly, the opposite is true of Satan. Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He is not your friend. He is not someone that you should flirt with. His schemes are not something that you should fall into. His traps are something that you should avoid. Satan is an agent of chaos. He has no other agenda but to wreck our lives. And you know what? He's good at his job, isn't he? Isn't he good at what he does? He's had thousands of years to perfect his strategies. And he has a specific game plan for destruction of your life in spiritual battle. If he is victorious, he will destroy you and your relationship with God. He will lure you and attempt to tempt you until you eventually relent. And here's the key. This is what I think each and every one of us need to know because we've all had victories over temptations. But what we need to understand is that he is in no rush to defeat you. Satan plays the long game. He's patient. He's like a predator who lies in wait waiting for his prey to have a moment of weakness. And then he pounces and then he attacks. And oftentimes when he attacks, you, you, you've borne witness to this before in your life. When he attacks, a lot of times you don't even see it coming. All of a sudden you've given into the struggle. You've given into this, this test or this trial or this temptation. And you look up and you're like, what just happened? Like, where did that come from? You ever had that happen in your life where you're like, man, you thought you had found victory over something, over a temptation, 
only to get hit again by it when you least expect it? I heard a short story this week about a, um, a church member who had uh, just made a, a brief comment to his pastor after a Sunday morning service. This was a probably a casual Christian type of church attender. And he had heard the, ser- the sermons preached. He had heard his pastor preach about temptation and the, the wiles and the schemes of the devil. And he came up to his pastor and he said, Pastor, I know I hear you talking about you know, the temptation of the, of, of the evil one and how he tempts us to engage in unethical and immoral things. But I got to tell you, it's like, it's like the devil never really bothers me. It's almost like he's not even real in my life. It's a dangerous statement to which the pastor responds, the old wide pastor, wise pastor responds. He says, you know, two people traveling down the same road in the same direction at the same speed rarely bump into each other. Folks, this is what I would tell you this morning. And it, again, it does not matter your age. It does not matter where you're at in life. If you don't feel the, the, the attacks of the enemy, if Satan is not trying to oppress you and come at you, Maybe it's because you've already taken the bait and you have been hooked. Maybe you have taken that bait hook, line, and sinker, and then the enemy says, I can lay off this person because I've already got her. I've already got them. They are already sucked in. They are already addicted. They are already experiencing um, defeat in this area. So the devil is our first baiter. The second one is our evil desires. If we look at James chapter 1, Verse 14 says specifically, it says, um, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. There are desires that each and every one of us have that come from within. Folks, we don't have to look very far to find evil because it's inside of each and every one of us. We are born with a sin nature that is passed down to us from Adam And that sin nature is bent on getting whatever it desires at whatever cost it takes. And you are proof that the devil doesn't even really have to exist anymore for evil to exist. Because there is wickedness in our hearts. We have what is called a sin nature. In fact, if you look back at Jeremiah, you don't have to turn there, but let me read Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. This verse has been on my heart the last several weeks because it exposes the reality of who we are without Christ. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know, there's a world out there that tells us, hey, just follow your heart. Just trust your heart. Your heart will never mislead you. It'll always deliver you and it'll always lead you down the right path. Just trust what your heart is telling you. Well, Scripture is saying, don't do that. Don't trust your heart. Don't go that direction because your heart is deceptive and it's wicked and it wants to attack you. Why would we trust something that is deceitful and sick and we can't understand it and it wants to attack us? But that's what we do. And this, this, herein lies the problem of our generation. We have far too often trusted our hearts and it has simply led us into our own evil desires. And it's crazy. Once we get lulled into or lured into temptation, it's crazy the things that we will do in order to justify our actions. And you're going to recognize some of these things. He's got three things for you. It's not in your notes, but there are three things that we typically do in order to justify how we have just given into temptation or maybe even lost that battle over that difficulty in our lives. The first thing that we do is we blame. 
The second thing that we do is we rationalize. And the third thing that we do is we compare. Folks, don't we love to blame other people for our problems? Don't we love to like not take personal responsibility? Because if I can blame you for something that has happened in my life or something that I have done, then it takes the focus off of me. It brings somebody else into my problem and I'm not alone. And maybe, just maybe, I can get off the hook. We love to pass the personal responsibility. You know, I've been a youth pastor. I've I've told you many times. I was a youth pastor for nearly 20 years. I've worked with a lot of kids and a lot of teenagers over the years literally hundreds of them. And, you know, you hear all kinds of excuses from kids for when they mess up. They'll tell you anything that you want to hear to get out of trouble. And one of my favorites is every year I would go to kids camp as a counselor. And so I might have a group of five boys. I might have a group of 12 boys, whatever it is. And I promise you every year at camp, this is one of the things that would happen. Chris, somebody stole my Bible. (laughs) And I'm thinking to myself immediately, are you kidding me? A little nine-year-old, if they have free reign to take whatever they want, they're going to steal your Bible? Like, really? That's what they're going to take? Apparently, there are a lot of Bible bandits at church camp, but I don't know. But either way, they would come to me and be like, Chris, somebody stole my Bible. I don't know what happened to it. Somebody took it. Well, the reality is, is this is what happens. That kid had not cleaned up his space or his bunk or his suitcases at all in four days, five days, and they've made a complete train wreck of their area and they just couldn't find it. So the easy thing is, is to blame someone else. We do that when we're eight. We do that when we're 18. We do that when we're 80. We love to blame other people and not take the responsibility for ourselves. And then we rationalize. We act like once we've blamed other people, maybe that doesn't work. We act like the temptation that we give into is really not that big of a deal. We convince ourselves that it's not hurting anyone else. It might not be a big deal and our actions might even be justified. After all, God wants us to be happy. That's what we think to ourselves. So we rationalize the things that we do. Maybe you've noticed this before in your life. Maybe you've been guilty of rationalizing. Think back to that time that you processed through the scenario, and you thought to yourself, if I do this, then this is going to happen. How can I make this work for my benefit? And you rationalize it playing out in your life, and you think through all the variables. Well, I would tell you that more often than not, more, more often than not, we have to talk ourselves into doing what's wrong than we have to talk ourselves into doing what's right. When we start finding loopholes, when we start finding out how to like talk ourselves into something, a lot of times we're rationalizing and we're making excuses for how we want to sin. And then we compare. Well, I'm not nearly as bad as they are. And this is, this is really big in, in, in folks' lives that have been Christians for maybe a long time. They love to rationalize. They love to compare. They say, well, I'm not nearly as bad as them. I've never committed those kind of atrocities. I must be okay. And one of the things that I tell my girls all the time, I preach this to them all the time. I said, you might look at us You might look at your teachers. You might look at social media influencers. You might look at your peers in youth group or at school. You might look at all of these, like all these different people. And you're going to look at them and you're going to think to yourself, well, I'm not doing so bad, am I? I'm doing actually pretty good. 
Because when we compare ourselves to others, we usually try to find the most degenerate person to compare ourselves to, right? And I have to remind my girls, listen, you're a degenerate just like they are. So do not compare yourselves to them. You compare yourselves to Christ. And you compare yourself to to God's word. But man, we all do these things. We fall into the trap of our evil desires and we take the bait and our hearts deceive us. We fall into wickedness and it leads to destruction. And can I tell you folks, I'm as guilty as anybody else is of this. You know, my heart is desperately wicked. I don't understand it. It wants to attack me. So I do these things because of the desires in my heart. And then thirdly, the bait of deception. The bait of deception. Going back to James chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. He is tempted when he is lured and enticed. That's what James is talking about. Now that word, those words lured and enticed, it's a hunting, it's a fishing metaphor. So to be lured by something means the trap has been set for you. And to be enticed means that the hook has been baited. And the enemy tries to draw us in by putting that bait on the hook and he wants to make it so appealing that we can't take our eyes off of it. It's so shiny and it's so alluring and it's so appealing that we just have to have it. Folks, I'll tell you right now, I am no fisherman. I'm not an expert. I fish every once in a while. I like to go deep sea fishing when we go to Florida. Um, but I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, an angler. I'm not a great fisherman. But I have caught a few fish, and I know enough about this whole concept of fishing to understand the metaphor here. And in fact, just a few weeks ago, I caught a record-breaking fish. Do you guys want to see it up on the screen? Check this out. I think we have it right there. <laughs> Look at that. That's a, I never said it was a large fish, <laughs> right? It's a, maybe a record-breaking, smallish little bluegill I've ever seen. I actually did catch a nice little bass. We've got another one there. Like, so I can catch some fish, but I understand that the art of deception in, in fishing is utterly important. If you can deceive well, you can fish well. And we have an enemy who is masterful at deception, And through deception, he tempts us and temptation appeals to our fleshly desires. And the bait of temptation then lures us in, but it hides the consequences of sin. So let me just make this statement. And and if you have time, if you can remember it, write this down because I think this is good. Temptation is the deception that makes you think you are the exception. Temptation is the deception that makes you think you're the exception. You convince yourself that you're the exception to the rule. That'll never matter to me. No one will ever know. It's just one time. It's not hurting anyone. I'll make up for it later. I'll answer for it later. God will forgive me. We think that we're the exception to the rule. And so we take the bait, we bite into the bait, and the hook is set, and then you're reeled in, and the enemy has you. Hook, line, and sinker. And this is what it leads to in verse 15 of James 1. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When you take that bite of that hook and the enemy has you and he reels you in, he wants to continue deceiving you and that deception turns into sin and that sin ultimately, if it doesn't get corrected, if it doesn't get repented of, if you just embrace it, it turns to death ultimately. Folks, what has died because you gave in to the deception of temptation in your life? 
Here's the, that's all the bad news, right? That's what the bait is. That's who the baiter is. Those are all bad news. But here's the good news. But God. But God. This is where the good news comes in. The other side of but means that you can escape. You can escape temptation. You can endure temptation. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Aren't you grateful this morning that you don't have to be overcome by temptation, that God gives you a way of escape? You don't have to be a victim. You are not obligated to take that bait and to be hooked by temptation. So the question is, outside of like what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how do we do that? Like, how do we become victorious over that temptation, whatever it is in our lives? Well, let's turn back to the book of James, but I want you to turn to chapter 4, and I want to read verse 7. A very simple, short verse. Many of you have heard it many times before. James says to the believers, reading his, his letter, he says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So how can we find victory over temptation in our lives? Number one, the last section of your notes, surrender to God. We're going to move quickly through these. Surrender to God. Every day you surrender your desires, you surrender your situations over to the Lord. I think there are far too many professing Christians who claim Jesus Christ as Lord. They claim that they're taking up their cross every day. They claim to be a living sacrifice, but they hold desperately onto the things that are dear to them. God, you can have my heart, you can have my eternity, you can have my soul, but you can't have my bank account. You can't have that diagnosis You can't have that anxiety. You can't have that future or that family member. We hold on to these things, that habit, that reputation, my pride. We hold on to these things and we refuse to surrender them over to the Lord. Folks, what if you re-surrendered that thing to God today? What if in this moment, in this place, you said, God, I know I've been holding on to this, but I need to surrender it because sooner or later, The enemy is going to use it to get the best of me. I need to surrender this. And I got to tell you, I am as prone to this as any one of you. I have my own temptations. I have my own things that I hold on to desperately, not wanting to let go because I want to control and I want to have my way and I want to have my peace. But every day, nearly, I have to remind myself that I am a living sacrifice, surrendered over to God. Because my flesh does want that control. And it doesn't want to give up. It doesn't want to let go. It wants to hold. It doesn't want to release. But we need to surrender over to God if we're going to have victory in the war of temptation. The second thing is we need to resist the devil. Resist the devil. Simple, simple little concept. First Peter 5 verses 8 and 9 says this. It says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the entire world. Folks, we don't have to fear the devil. We can resist him. We can fight back. You know, attraction doesn't mean that we have to take action. You can resist the bait of temptation. You don't have to get hooked. 
So stand and resist what the enemy throws at you. You know, I got to tell you, one of, my, one of the best ways to resist temptation is through community. When you have people around you that are looking into your life, that are holding you accountable, that are looking out for your best interest, that want you to pursue Christ as much as they want to pursue Christ, man, that goes a long way. I can tell you my discipleship grows exponentially when there are a lot of Christians around me that are for me and for my holiness. So you need to be in community because what scripture says is there's a whole brotherhood over, you know, over the entire world that are going through the same things. And so you need to understand that community is a big part of resisting the devil. And what happens when you resist? Scripture tells us that the devil flees. He has to flee. And when he flees, he takes that temptation with him. And you've just experienced victory. The third thing is let the Holy Spirit fight. Yes, you absolutely can resist. Yes, you absolutely can fight. But if you're doing it in your own power over an extended period of time, sooner or later, the the enemy, the, the devil is going to overpower you. He is just too strong. But first John, I love this. First John chapter four, verse four, it says this, little children, you are from God and you have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Folks, you plus the Holy Spirit always equals a majority. You plus the Holy Spirit can always have victory over the enemy. When the Holy Spirit fights for you, he always tips the scales in your favor. And just like Satan is more powerful than you, the Holy Spirit is more powerful than Satan. So we have the supernatural power within us. When we are Christ followers, when the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, we have a supernatural power. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We have a supernatural power in us that allows us to fight in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. We don't have to fight in our own strength because my, my strength is only so strong. Sooner or later, I'll, if I'm white knuckling in my own strength trying to do the right thing, sooner or later I will cave to what I want to look at on that screen. I will spend my money on the things that I know I shouldn't. I will respond to my wife the way I know is not honoring to her or to the Lord because I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I'm holding on to my own strength. And sooner or later, you just get worn down and you give in. But through the power of the Holy Spirit, we have a strength that goes beyond our own. And his strength is way more strong than the God of this world. The God inside of you is mightier than the God of this world. And then fourthly, how do we find victory over temptation? Stay alert to future temptation. Stay alert to future temptation. Back to 1 Peter chapter 5. In verse 8 where where Peter says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. For your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, man, stay alert. Keep your head on a swivel. Keep your ears up. Be paying attention. See what's going on around you. Do not get lulled into comfort. Do not get deceived into thinking that you live in peacetime Christianity. The enemy wants to bait you into thinking that there is no clear and present danger in your life. But the reality is, as soon as you think you are safe, is exactly when he wants to attack. When you are at your weakest, when you are at your most vulnerable. So stay alert to the temptation possibilities in front of you. 
because more assaults are on their way. Maybe right now you're living in a moment of victory and you're like, man, God has given me victory over that addiction of my past. He's given me victory over that bad habit. He's given me victory over um, those emotional struggles that I've had and my family background and all the people that have hurt me and my anger or whatever it might be. And you might just be lured into thinking, I've got this all under control. Well, just about the time you think you have it all under control is about the time where the enemy wants to surface and he wants to attack again. He is patient. And so stay connected to the Holy Spirit. Let him fight for you. Resist him. Stay alert to what's going on around you. Folks, as long as we have breath, the enemy is going to lure and entice us. And the temptation of sin, and you've heard this phrase before, sin will take you farther than you want to go It will cost you more than you want to pay, and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. So fight temptation in your life through the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't take the bait of Satan, because what you flirt with, you will eventually fall for. And maybe today you've fallen for that temptation. Maybe you've taken that bait. Maybe the enemy has hooked you. And maybe today is a day for you to repent and to admit to God, confess to God that you've been overcome and you've been overwhelmed by the enemy, today is a day. You might be a great sinner this morning. I can tell you what, I'm the first one to raise my hand. I am a great sinner, but I serve an even greater Savior. And he is able to forgive all of my transgressions if I just confess them to him and repent and turn from that sin and that temptation that I've given into. Maybe today is your day to repent. Let's close in prayer.